This episode is sponsored by Horizon Capital, an M&A and micro-private equity firm that acquires and grows SaaS companies. Horizon Capital only works with SaaS companies generating between 500K and 5 million in annual recurring revenue, where they help them unlock the true value of their business and scale to the next level. Whether you're ready to move on to your next startup or want to work with the right growth partner, Horizon's team will work with you to find the best structure possible. From M&A strategy to capital investments, SaaS is all they do. Simple as that. If you're a SaaS founder with less than $5 million in annual recurring revenue and are looking to sell your business, visit horizoncapital.com today and get a free valuation. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about expanding your SaaS to international markets, effectively managing remote teams, and going through a major rebranding as a SaaS company. Today, we have our guest, Bryce Davies, joining us. Bryce is a tech founder who is originally from Australia and then moved to the UK in 2017 to expand an Australian workforce management application into the UK market. Bryce is currently the UK general manager at Tanda, which has now been rebranded as Workforce, an award-winning workforce management software that provides clarity, control, and tools for businesses to get the most from their workforce. Bryce also uses his skills in startups, sales, and marketing to help businesses scale their sales and marketing teams and using scraping technology to automate their revenue growth. So welcome, Bryce. Super excited to have you on the Super SaaS District show today. Hey, cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So uh, for those who don't know, you know, about your background and about uh, Workforce, can you just share what's your personal background? What's the and what's the story behind deciding to join Workforce in 2016? Uh, I think you believe you started off in the customer success role and then obviously moving up your way up to the general manager role. Yeah, definitely. So um, I've probably had a bit of a bit of a sort of sideways path into software, although I think most of us do. Um, my, my studies were primarily in um, electronic engineering. So I was very much on the hardware side and um, spent a bit of time um, in uh, robotics labs and a few other things um, throughout, throughout university as I just got out of it. Um, and uh, I kind of had this, this thought that was really kind of sitting with me for a long time that I'd just be stuck in a basement soldering, you know, components onto, a, onto PCBs and things like that. So I finally um, you know, gave myself permission to stop being an engineer and um, I knew that uh, I wanted to work for a startup. So I kind of I stumbled into a, um, a local tech startup um, in Brisbane, Australia called Tanda. Um, and one of the things I really, really liked about it was um, you know, not, not being a web developer, but still being somewhat technical, I was able to sort of come in um, and work with our customers in the customer success team doing a lot of implementation work, which was, um, which was really fun and troubleshooting um, for, for our customers. And that was like a just really awesome opportunity for me to, to use sort of my problem solving skills, but also be interacting with customers, which is something that was really important to me at the time. Nice. And then, so just to clarify, when you joined in 2016, were they, what stage were they at? How big were they? Do you remember? Were they still a kind of early stage startup or were they already quite big? Yeah. So 
um, when I joined, I think it was about four of us started on the same day, and I think there was about twelve of us all up. So you know, very much you know they've been they've been grinding away for a couple of years. Um, you know, entirely bootstrapped business. Um, you know, really just a big success story from from our hometown. And um, yeah, I think at that time that was when they kind of really they knew they were onto a good thing and were trying to accelerate in terms of um, employee growth and. You know, over the next, I think, eighteen months, you know, we we grew to about a hundred hundred heads or a bit bit more. So, you know, wow. it was really, I think, that um, yeah, that couple of years past there that um, you know, we really kind of had, I think, what looks, you know, to a lot of people, you know, that classic startup story. You know, you 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 come in and it's ten or so people in a in a small room, and you know, you look back a year yeah. or two, and, and then it's a uh, you know, crazy year on year growth, but all yeah. uh, all good fun. Nice, nice. So twelve. Then what are you guys at now? Just quick headcount numbers. Entire team. Um, touch over uh, over a hundred, I'd say about one hundred and twenty heads. One hundred twenty. Nice. So ten x yep. there. Very cool. Um, so obviously, you know, big question here: workforce, COVID, twenty twenty. You know, a lot has been going on with people moving remotely. Uh, can you share any trends you've seen and biggest challenges you've seen with companies with their workforce management moving completely remotely or mostly remotely this year? Yeah, I think a lot of people intuitively know what a lot of these are. I mean, we've we've seen a lot of talk about you know work from home um, or that so that uh, that kind of dynamic. Um, a lot of businesses that we work in, are, um, you know, they might have a contingent workforce, so people are paid by the hour um, or by the shift. And you know, a lot of these uh, employees are you know, people that work on the front line. They're they're carers. You know, they're you know the hospitality workers. They're working in hotels, making sure that hotel rooms get cleaned. So one of the interesting things for us, I think, is you know, everyone has this idea. Well, you know, everyone's working from home. Well, there's a lot of the of the world that's not working from home. They're still um, more or less on the front line, um, you know, doing all the jobs that you know we don't have to do because we're you know working from our living rooms. But I mean, continually the big the big trend is you know, keeping employees engaged, making sure that everyone's on the same line and pulling along uh, for the same mission. Um, I think that's one of the big things that we've seen work from home has really disrupted this ability that businesses have to keep everyone aligned. Um, and I think what we're realizing now is just how much those sort of face-to-face interactions, or those, you know, you bump into someone, you know, in the corridor, how much that actually contributes to culture and information sharing. Yeah. Um, so we're you know, we're really helping a lot of our clients balance this idea between you've got people who have to work and those people who can work from home, and how do we make them all feel like they're pulling in the same direction and they're on the same team? Um, mm-hmm. And it, and it's really hard. It's really hard. It it is a challenge. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've been working remotely for almost five years now or, or more. Um, and yeah, I, I still miss, you know, the in-person, you know, we, we have an office here and, you know, having that interaction, I think you move a lot quicker. And if it's completely remote, I think once you have a, like a repeatable process and you know how to do it, then it's easier to manage remotely. But when you're trying to build things, I think it could be a challenge, right? Um, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is this is just like this big social experiment that we've just kind of unleashed on everyone all at once. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've taken people that they have... Everything that you just described, but set up in the other way, where they've got you know all of their processes that that actually rely on having face-to-face interaction mm-hmm. and being able to pick up little social cues from someone, for instance, by the way that they hold themselves when they come into the office. Um, well, now all of that you know is being communicated via a chat screen or you know at best um, a video call like this. Um, yeah. and it's going to take a long time for people to to adjust. I think. Absolutely. Um, so I think what's interesting is you guys. Started off in Australia, and then you decided in 2017 to expand to the UK and US. So, you know, from a SaaS perspective, I think generally, you know, people, you know, don't find that to be as challenging. But I do understand there's a lot of challenges behind it. Um, you know, but maybe you can speak more to it. What, what were these challenges that you saw when you helped, you know, with that expansion to the other markets? 
Yeah, um, there's lots of challenges. But I think the first thing to keep in mind, I think, obviously, we're a bootstrap company, so you know, big, you know, big, for for me, it was basically my my first three months on the ground were you know living in Airbnbs, like moving around every two weeks, just trying to talk to customers, um, and really just try to make smart decisions around where we invest. Um, I guess the, the really good thing about being a SaaS company is our our overheads are, are quite low. You know, we can we don't have to come and set up software on site. You know, everything's deployed in the cloud. Um, but um, one of the elements I think of our business is, you know, we're we're helping people get paid correctly and on time. Um, and there's a big compliance element in that, um, you know, particularly in Australia and then, you know, in every other market around the world. So um, that was that was a challenge getting our heads around, you know, what the UK employment law was, and obviously the same thing for for the US as well. Um, and you know, the, the the funny thing I think in terms of the the culture, I mean. The culture between Australians um, and British in the UK, um, you know, we we consider ourselves you know very similar people. Australians maybe slightly more lighthearted and slight, maybe swear more than your average uh, British person, but um, you know the 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 culture being being very similar, I think, allowed us to kind of understand the the customers and understand the marketing that we would need to do a lot better. Um, I think you know in the US. You know, st- still when I go to the US, I seem to get some you know culture shock thing going on because it, it it just feels feels different. So <laughs> people often say, yeah, that move from Australia to the UK is is one of the easiest ones. It's a three times bigger market with a you know very similar um, legal understanding, very similar culture. But um, you know, there's there's still little bits that, that trip you up all the time. Mm. And you mentioned you have to decide on where to allocate uh, your capital to be efficient. Are you, are you talking more about? Uh, from a product perspective, and where to focus your time, are you talking about more from marketing, and you know, optimizing your your, your marketing budget? All of it. I mean, I, I think really, when you're coming into a new market, you know, you or your team, you're really the tip of the spear. So yeah, you, know, you need to be really on the ground doing sales. That's basically what's going to be driving, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the revenue that allows you to pull or everything else back into the market. Um, so that means that you know we're you know we're having to rely on a lot of back office functionality from Australian. Um, team to build product for us, um, help us with marketing campaigns, run all that sort of stuff that we we need, and we're kind of you know begging, cheating, and stealing all the resources we we need <laughs> to you know, try to convince people to you know that that the UK is a is a worthy bet and we should be putting more into it. Um, so I think you know big big play for us was a lot around integrations at the very very start. We were quite lucky that um, there wasn't a huge amount of compliance work to do. Um, at least you know, immediately, it was preventing us from from getting uh, in there. And we had a lot of experience, I think, going into the US as well around adding a translation layer to our to our software. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, bit, a big one for us when we went into the US was people that had no idea what a roster is. You know, it's like, is this is this uh, is this something that my basketball team needs? We're like, no, actually, <laughs> you know, th- this is what we call a schedule. So, we basically couldn't sell our software to any anyone who wasn't running a basketball team in the, in the US. But <laughs> luckily, we didn't have as many of those issues in, in, um, in the UK, but little things like that still come up. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Um, do you remember what like the time frame was from when you initially kind of stepped foot into the UK or the US and you know try to build out that, that plan to launch and build the sales and, and uh, organization there? Um, and then what, what worked well and what didn't, if you can share any, any stories there? Yeah, I mean, we... I think one of the good things about being a bootstrap company is, um, although we don't have all the resources to do everything at once, like it seems like a lot of um, you know, venture back com- companies are, um, it gave us, I think, a lot of freedom 
Um, and you know, we were basically free to you know send me to the UK on a fairly short time frame. Um, you know, it was actually it was a bit of a shambles to be honest. We um, we you know I, we had some loose plans for me to come to the UK, but um, a lot of those were accelerated by we you know we had a big enterprise meeting. Um, you know, with a with a um, national food retailer um, that you know was basically saying you know come to London, meet us. You know, if, if we like your software and you know we'll we'll get started with it and. We thought that'd be an awesome opportunity, you know, get some enterprise revenue through the door and, you know, bankroll the whole thing. Um, and, you know, I got on the flight, went, went, to, uh, went to London, the, the meeting never materialized. Um, so I, I found myself in, um, in, a, in, a, in a basement in Shepherd's Bush in an Airbnb thinking like, well, you know, I better make this work now, <laughs> you know, with, without <laughs> that. But as you can imagine, my, um, my strategy fairly quickly went to sort of an SME mid-market play. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think we kind of accelerated a lot of things because we knew we'd try to make it work one way or another. Um, and, you know, I think the conversations at the time were really, well, you know, give it six months. And if we're not getting any traction at all, you know, we might, we might, um, pull you out, but, um, yeah, it's not too costly to have a run at it and, and see if we can make sales and, and invest, um, off the back of that. Interesting. So the, what led you to go to the UK was that enterprise lead and client that you're hoping that would pay for everything. What would you have done differently now if that happened? And this, you know, he had a client and I don't, I don't know, middle, you know, uh, let's call it, you know, Spain who said, Hey, come down and, and let's talk. Would you still go down and, and test it out? It depends on your goals as a company. I think, I think for mm. us, we were very aware of the fact that, you know, we were a big fish in a small pond in Australia. Mm. Um, you know, we're very much, you know, approaching a you know, market leading position there. And, um, okay. of course, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big market, but, um, you know, when, when it comes to these types of solutions, but we're keenly aware that, you know, we were every month that we didn't pull the trigger on going to the UK and going to the US, um, mm. you know, that, that would be costing us down the line. Um, and I think a lot of, I think that did, you know, pay off and a lot of our intuitions around that were correct because you know, the, the competition more broadly is quite a lot weaker, um, here than, than it is in Australia. Um, but what I think I would have done, um, is maybe thought a bit more about the business process side of it. So probably getting an accountant on the ground who can help us navigate some of the mm. accounting and legal stuff. Um, so I didn't have to kind of learn about that as I go along. That was probably, that probably would have been a good investment in time. But, you know, I think when you're, <laughs> we have this tendency, I think, in, in software just to kind of think we're, you know, more or less invincible. Like, you know, if software breaks, then we just fix it and release a new one. You know, yeah. we just kind of think everything else is like that. Like, oh, you know, if you do your taxes wrong, like you, you know, you, you kind of you do you fix them and you do them again. And, and to some extent, that's right. But having some some prior planning might might be good as well. Sure. Yeah. So was it that the the meeting didn't materialize, meaning they didn't show up, or was it because of like some accounting gap in your product that just didn't lead anywhere? Or product gap. I th I think maybe we we probably over um, oversold the 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 lead a bit. But you know, okay. I think at the same time you've got to be bold, and I think it was, I think it was the right play. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where I think we, what we found with our solution is when we can get in the room and we can be face to face with someone and show it to them, mm. um, they love what they see because we've it, we've kind of we're breaking from a lot of the convention with a lot of these tools. Like if you think about workforce management, you, you know, you're already bored. Like it's it's you know it sounds boring. <laughs> you know, you can't you have you think about the last time you signed off on a timesheet, like, you know, it just kind of gives you chills. But I think what we do is we recognize that this is already a pretty, this is, this is, this stuff is the last thing that people want to do. So we might as well make it good software, um, and easy to use. And, 
Um, and I think that's kind of really that comes across when we show it to people, and and uh, mm. we have a lot of confidence in it. It's good. You're you're quite honest with your own product, right? You're like we're not that sexy AI, and and you know all that mix. We're we're boring timesheets, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we um, we talk a lot about AI as well, but I think, um, yeah. you know, I think all, all software companies are kind of uh, doing that in a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way. So. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. So I understand, you know, you're working with these big organizations, multiple departments, multiple employees within them. Um, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of difficulty and complexity in managing all these employees, especially more so now with large volume of teams moving remotely. Um, what What's some approaches you've seen or you assess uh, with you know time and attendance tracking to avoid you know discrepancies and then you know obviously dishonesty from employees. How, how do you guys keep track of that? Yeah, so there's both a sort of a technological layer to it, and there's kind of a um, an organizational layer, as you could call it HR for for lack of a better word. I think the what I've seen time and time again is we get people coming to us and they essentially have a HR problem in that, you know, employees might be being dishonest or that, you know, that people are stealing from the business or, or whatever. And they kind of want a technological solution that will catch those people out. Um, you know, quite often in the face of something like that, a technological fix um, is only ever a bandaid and it, it's basically doomed to fail because people like that can find ways around anything. Um, mm. You know, as, as much as I'm, I can sit here and tell you, yeah, we, we track hundred percent of, you know, X, Y, Z, people are always going to find a way to sabotage it or just or just not use it, just withhold themselves from the whole process. So firstly, yeah. I mean, fixing anything like that and just getting to the core of that is is really important. Um, and then I'd say, yeah, like the, the process, introducing some some technology into the process, you know, whatever that may be to, to make everything one more transparent because um, I think that creates a lot of friction between people when, you know, I, I, people don't know you know, whether their timesheets are being received or, um, you know, who has access to that and just making sure everyone can get on the same same page. And then, um, you know, I'd, I'd say this, I guess, for any business owners or anyone who's, who's uh, I guess, interested in this stuff is go and, go and speak to someone who's doing your payroll because that's kind of where um, where all the externalities end up. So, mm. you know, they we often find these uh, critically overworked payroll teams because people have negotiated these crazy contracts with people where there's all the stuff that's super hard to calculate and inevitably we come in to automate all of it um but people don't really think about the downstream effects of it you know just just in the same way that the accounts team always hates salespeople because they're creating you know really complicated deals that are just so hard to, to build <laughs> customers for um payrolls is, is is quite the same so i think working back from any issues that that arrive there are, are important as well mm. and then adding to that how do you uh so you ha- we, we've done this before, where, you know, we have time tracking tools where people are, you know, they're being monitored and uh, we're keeping track of their hours and their time and screenshots, all of the above. Um, and then others where, you know, they're kind of set goals um, and they're trying to trust it to deliver. How do you, you know, suggest keeping that, that balance when you're managing a team where you feel you're monitoring them at all the time and micromanaging them their day to day versus, you know, setting that goal and then just giving them a trust to deliver? How, how do you keep that balance? Yeah, so the the tracking one is is interesting, and we've we've done a bit of work on this in terms of um, you know trying to educate people. I think this this tracking thing is the is the perfect storm for b- businesses for for the reason we've already discussed, which is you got people working from home, so they already feel like they're separated from the company's mission. Um, they're already kind of feeling like they're an island to themselves, or you know they're um, they're less able to align themselves with other people they're working with, and tr- and it breaks down trust um, over time. 
Um, and then, of course, the business is, is feeling something the same way as well. They're saying, well, we have all these employees. We're not quite sure what they're, they're doing. We really hope that they're doing the right thing. Um, and they, they want to protect you know, their investment. Um, and that leads them to put in some sort of monitoring software. But of course, everyone perceives this as being, being spying because there was no work done up front to explain why we'd want to do it. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing. Before you do any, anything with technology, any process change, anything, it's good to then real, realign everyone around the mission first. So mm-hmm. to say, you know, hey guys, you know, one of the big concerns for the business is that you know, we all want to make sure that we're pulling in the same direction during COVID. It's hard for us to do that. We appreciate it's hard for you guys working from home. Let's, we want to you know, create a system where we can have transparency across the board and align everyone. This is what we want to do. You know, what do you think? And sort of engage your employees around it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you'll, if you explain to employees why we're doing this, you, know, you might actually inc- uncover something that means you don't need to do that in the first place. Or mm-hmm. if you are going to do it, then it's understood by everyone. But the worst thing you can do is just yeah, unilaterally put in something like this and don't explain it. And um, yeah, I think there's some pretty famous examples in the UK of a few banks around the place who are having employees, you know, suing them or you know, basically right. just re- re- revolting over this stuff. Yeah, I love that. We're saying you know, invasion of privacy and you know all that, right? So it's a challenge, but yeah, that, that's a good point, right? As long as you explain it and show. But I mean, hopefully, you don't get too much pushback. But it's all business in the end, right? You're Part of part of it, I think, and you have you have to either accept it or work with it, right? Yeah, and employees will yeah. just will just um, will check out if they're not engaged with it. Like they'll just mm. they'll just not use it. Um, exactly. Not, you know, and if there's if there's no penalty for doing that. Yeah, and do you enforce penalties? I don't know. I don't know how you can, but yeah. Um, so another kind of challenge I want to speak about is you know international or global SaaS companies, right there managing scheduling, or you call it rostering. Um, they require employees to schedule different parts of the day for 24 hours, maybe because of the, the industry or the, or the time zone difference, um, such as you know with you in Australia and then the UK. How do you suggest making that process more efficient and keeping that communication fluid among the international distributor teams? Yeah, so I think on this, um, you know, scheduling is, is really kind of what it comes down to is managing demand on the business. So you, you, the, the common one, and I think that we have in our business is, you know, we have this follow the sun model where, yeah, we, you know, like I said, we've got, um, you know, teams in Australia and the US and throughout Asia and the UK. And essentially what that allows us um, to do is essentially op- operate 24 hours a day, um, you know, during sort of daylight hours. Um, and the reason why we do that um, is because we have this demand on our business from customers all around the world to, you know, support them to use the software to make sure they're getting results to um, maintain the product. So all of these things are sort of demands on our business and and scheduling. What it really tries to do is make sure that the business is, is ready um, for that demand or any predicted demand. Um, and if it's putting the right people in the right place at the right time and those people are trained and all that sort of good stuff. So um, really what we try to do is step back and we try to work out what are the kind of demands on the business? What are the inputs? Mm. Um, you know, What does the demand look like? Is it stable? Is it Lumpy, um, you know, one of our, our biggest clients, uh, Domino's Pizza, they've they've got this down to a um, to a to a science essentially, where they're trying to predict how many pizzas um, are being you know made in, in a fifteen minute um, periods, and they 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 really really boiled that down, um, and they have a very linear wow. um, business model and a very linear process around it, um, yeah, which is yeah why they can make pizzas that arrive at your door so um, quickly, um, <laughs> but you know. You don't have to, to, to go that far around it, but you do have to understand 
you know what what's um, what's kind of driving um, your business and, and how you can actually um, put the right people uh, in there to meet that demand. Mm, I, I guess when you have what is that thirty minutes or it's free guarantee, uh, the, the downside is uh, and the risk of, of not putting that in place is pretty high. So it's well worth it. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> cool. Um, so I want to shift gears and talk about the the rebranding. So um, you guys have built you know, built the brand of Tanda for over eight years, right? From uh, you know, 2012. What was mm-hmm. the, the decision process? I don't know if you were involved in this to rebrand the name, the domain and the product to work for us. I think it was in 2020. Yeah. So I think like all things, it's kind of a mixture of um, a plan and a, and a vision and also just really good timing. Um, mm. I think one of the things that we were kind of quite cognizant of at the, at the time when, when we had this opportunity um, was, you know, Tanda literally stands for time and attendance. So T and A. Um, and you know, that, that's fine because at the time, you know, this is, this is our first product we made is around time and attendance. Um, but we, we really felt that our business had evolved quite a lot past that. You know, we were basically providing tooling across a really wide range of business problems that were not just time and attendance. So, you know, we have, uh, you know, a financial product, um, in, in Australia as well, which was helping people, um, with their pension and, and retirements. Um, we had a, a range of tools you know, across the HR space. We we're doing stuff um, you know, with machine learning and, and AI and kind of talking about this, this rostering demand piece. Um, and the, sort of the name Tanda didn't really kind of square well, I think, mm-hmm. with, with where we thought we were going. At the same time, we had this opportunity to acquire a company um, in the US called um, Human Capital Media, and they published the, the Workforce magazine. Um, which is one of well, basically one of the longest running um, publications in the workforce management space. Um, some of their uh, most earliest publications are basically the turn of the century, kind of early 1900s. So they have this this really long pedigree of thinking about the same sort of issues that we're trying to solve with software, um, but they've been thinking about it from a, I guess maybe a more academic perspective um, for a long time. So yeah, it created a really good opportunity for us to. You know, to, to make that acquisition and with it kind of all the expertise and, and the pedigree of that brand. And then, you know, also to kind of use that to rebrand down software in a way that kind of signaled our intention to the market where, you know, we're going to be making a, we're going to be making software across this whole space. You know, we want to be solving problems in here in this space for the next hundred years. You know, if it, if it turns out in, you know, hundred years time, we're all replaced by robots. We, we want to be the, I guess, it gets the software that helps you manage that if that's your workforce now. Um, mm. So we're kind of we're kind of thinking about it and trying to abstract out and just giving ourselves room to to make um, more more products for more people and, and solve um, bigger and bigger problems as they come up. Cool. Yeah, I guess kind of the vision has changed, the product has changed. Where you guys see the the business has changed from eight years ago. So you want to encapsulate encapsulate that in a different uh, name and brand. Um, what have you had any issues or anything you can share that you've seen since making those changes and how or what would you su- suggest to other founders who are maybe considering that thought of maybe rebranding their, their business? I think there's a whole literature of, um, of stuff out there about how hard it is to rebrand a company. And, and you know, mm-hmm. keep in mind, so we haven't just done a rebranding, we've also done an acquisition and essentially a merger mm-hmm. um, at the same time. So do, doing those two things are, are very difficult side by side. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a couple of things on that. So one, you know, obviously... Um, you know, with a, with a SaaS company, just how it works kind of technologically, you know, people kind of, you know, we're running a, a service kind of all around the world. You know, we, someone in Australia might interpret this very differently to someone in the US versus someone in the UK. 
you know, we, we essentially had these kind of um, concentric circles or sort of um, like a Venn diagram, sorry, where people in the US really know workforce, didn't really know Tanda. People in Australia really know Tanda, don't really know workforce. People in the UK kind of don't, didn't really know either of them, um, you know, at the time. So, the, you know, the UK has really kind of been the epicenter of integrating a lot of this stuff because um, it's kind of the most free to, to, to do these things. But yeah, I mean, st- stuff comes up, kind of customers' expectations, um, just, you know, changes all the way through the tech stack. We had to develop um, basically the ability to white label um, our solution, mm. which we didn't have before. So uh, basically using a translation layer to swap everything out, swap logos out, all that sort of stuff. Um, app store listings, um, you know, all the SEO, uh, all of our integration partners that like we integrate with, you know, pro- probably anywhere between 50 and 100 integration partners. So talking to all those people, updating on them, their marketplaces, um, all of those things. Um, and then, then, you know, then you come to, okay, you know, how do we integrate our team uh, with the HCM team? You know, what does that like look like? How did we make sure we're all pulling in the right direction? Um, you know, there's there's risk factors kind of all up and down, um, mm. up and down it. But uh, I think uh, you know, on the whole, the way that we've we've worked through it is really just try to take it challenge by challenge. Um, it's really hard to see a lot of the stuff um, kind of in advance. So we've kind of always just tried to be solving what's in front of us and and kind of trying to do it in a creative way. Um, and I do think what we've what we've come up with is 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 quite good. I would just say to founders looking into it. Um, you know, this is say if you're just if you're just doing a rebranding, like you know, sometimes you actually you don't realize how much the clients were really attached to the old brand. Like we still have clients telling us, you know, we'll, we'll never call you workforce. Like we'll, we'll, you'll always <laughs> be tandered. You'll always be tandered to us. Um, and I'm not sure whether to take that as a positive and that you know we built a a good brand at least what we had before, or you know, a negative that they're not necessarily willing to change their perception of us, but we'll see. I, I think you did a good job. I mean, that's typically a sign that they've actually got some emotional attachment to your brand, right? And anything else to them is foreign and they don't want to know it, even though you're the same people behind the company, right? <laughs> it's pretty strange, um, yeah. you know, and, and I think also what that comes down to is if you, if you think about what we've done is we've basically taken something that's quite easy to understand, you know, we help you with your time and attendance and we've kind of shifted it up a level of abstraction where we're saying, we want to help you with anything that's kind of related to your workforce, and specifically in these areas. But we want to have these high-level conversations with you. That is kind of harder to execute from a marketing standpoint because True. people are—it's harder for them to nail you down. You know, which which from a marketing perspective is is what you want. You want people to more or less put you in a box if it's easy for you to understand what that yeah. box is. Um, so that that's just a conversation piece for us moving forward. Mm. And that's kind of a good segue. And speaking about marketing, um, I'm assuming COVID has been good for you guys and probably accelerated a lot of the demand and, and uh, you know, uh, people, clients for, for your growth. Um, what, what would you say are other marketing approaches that you've seen work well for a workforce, say, before, you know, COVID and then maybe, say, during it in these last few months? Yeah, I wish we could be put in the, in the same category of Zoom um, yeah. and all those other c- companies. But um Counterintuitively, it's a bit different for us because we're, you know, a lot of lockdowns going on around the world, mm. um, which you know puts puts the the teams that we service kind of you know out of action. So, um, yeah, we, we've taken a bit of a hit on that, but but not as much as you expect if you were you know running a, a restaurant yourself. Um, so we've more, more or less been able to pull through there. Um, yeah, sorry, mate. I might just get you to um, ask the question again. Sorry, I just, just lost my train sure, of thought. No problem. What was, so, what were the marketing uh, 
you know, approaches or strategies that's worked well before COVID? And then, you know, now would you say during COVID? Yeah, um, definitely. So but before we had um, a, a strategy, I think in the, in the UK that was really heavily based around um, getting in front of the customer, as I mentioned before. So events um, and, uh, you know, a lot of demonstrations and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, some of the event halls that we've been using, um, you know, a lot of them have been turned into field hospitals. Um, you know, the, the most, uh, the one closest to us, the Excel Center in London is a, is a you know, massive um, field hospital where the, the government is basically earmarking that space in case they want to, uh, you know, ex- rapidly expand the, the hospital system. Mm-hmm. So all of that is off um, and we've had to adapt uh, to that. Um, obviously, we've seen the, um, the webinar craze, webinar boom, um, I think. And in fact, a lot of the webinar software we were using um, pre-COVID was all crashing as we kind of got into it. Um, mm. So we've, we've really had to adapt around that. I think, um, yeah, just, just trying to keep people engaged. You know, st- still a lot of email campaigns are working. Um, trying to get people um, on the phone is a, lot, is a lot harder. So trying to really ramp up our efforts around content marketing. Um, you know, trying to give people stuff they can, they can use and still kind of engage on their own time. Um, I think that's, uh, that's really been the, the important thing for us and also trying to pepper that with some, some webinars as well. But it's been, um, yeah, it's been extremely hard. And I think, you know, a lot of these uh, expos are still pushed out until September 2021 or, or even later is when they're going to run. Yeah. So you said something interesting there. A lot of people are not, you know, are less willing to get on a call. Uh, recently, I think we've seen that trend maybe in the last few months. I think the early stages of COVID, everybody wanted to get on the call and chat and then something weird happened. I think people just, I think it was near the end of summer, people started, you know, kind of less wanting to, I don't know if they got Zoom fatigue or what, but uh, mm. curious what you guys are seeing or what, what's your thinking there? It comes and goes. I mean, in the UK, we've kind of had this double dip um, lockdown where we went through basically a lockdown like everywhere else did in the world. And then we had this, uh, you know, this brilliant summer with, you know, great weather and lots of government stimulus convincing people to get out in, in there. And, um, you know, the summer in uh, in Europe is is basically a write-off anyway because everyone's on holidays. But, um, you know, coming back down into lockdown again, you know, it's, it's been this real cyclical um, thing that's been a, been pretty hard to, to predict. I think the big thing for us, um, you know, we are for a lot of people mission critical tool and that you know, we help them get their staff paid. So we've really been trying to keep um, our customers you know, as close and kind of put our arms around them as much as we can. Um, and and you know, for more than anything else, I think that really helps us on the product side. Because um, I, I think you know, one of my big fears at the start was that we would just take our eye off the market. And then you know, this work from home thing or some other um, thing would basically change everyone's uh, motivations around this space and you know, we'd need to build sort of radically different software maybe next year, but not be aware of it yet. Um, mm. Luckily, that that hasn't really materialized. But you know, there's, there's always a big risk. I think if you're no longer talking to your customers and no longer talking to the market, you're not getting that feedback. And if it moves quickly, you know, you can really be left behind. Mm. It makes sense. Cool. Uh, so, Bryce, who or what or would you say are the best three resources? Well, it could be books, could be mentors, it could be people you follow. Who would you say have been the most instrumental to your success? Yeah, so the ones I suppose I'd I'd recommend are really just software and startup canon. Really, I mean, when I as I mentioned, when I came into a lot of the stuff, um, I was not from a software background. I think a lot of people aren't, but I was more from a hardware background. So, you know, I really ate up books like Customer Success from Salesforce and the Lean Startup and all that stuff that every that everyone knows. I think the things that are beneficial for me now is just to try to read more widely, so I can kind of understand 
you know, wider parts of the business. So I, I've been reading a lot about finance, um, you know, particularly kind of understanding you know, some of the dynamics that are shaping, you know, what how our customers buy things and what their business models are based on. One really good book I think I'd, I would recommend uh, is a book called Capitalism Without Capital. Um, and what that, you know, that, that is essentially a, a pretty light read from a finance perspective, but it's really good because it basically explains, you know, how our economies are changing now that everything is moving to sort of software and intangible things. So, you know, it used to be that, you know, we had factories building things and, you know, if you wanted to open a factory, you'd buy a bunch of um, machinery and then you'd hire a bunch of stuff and you put things together. Um, but we clearly don't do those sorts of things now and we're creating billion dollar companies, you know, where hiring people and we're asking them to think about things and, and write code. Um, yeah. And it turns out that doing that creates very different economies and very different business models. Um, and uh, reading that book, I think, just gives you a really good insight into why we build product the way we do, why do we sell software the way we do, um, why do we support customers the way we do. I think um, that's, that's a good one for people to kind of dig into. Awesome. Capitalism Without Capital by Jonathan Haskell and Stein Westlake. Cool. We'll add that Salon, to yeah. the show notes. Cool. Very cool. Um, Bryce, what does success mean to you today? Whether personally, business, professionally, no right answer. Yeah, I've been, um, I think for a long time, it's been pretty hard for me to untangle those two things. I mean, obviously, mm. you know, moving to, to the UK, uh, worked for a long time and, you know, I had a single point of focus on growing the business here, kind of, you know, leaving my family back there and, and, uh, and making this work. And I think, I think now we're really coming through that tunnel of, you know, worrying if it's going to fail every day or every, you know, once a month maybe and um, mm. kind of having a, a wider scope on, you know, what success means and kind of allowing to allow myself to kind of broaden the definition of that. Um, I think that's been really beneficial for, for, the, for the business as well. You know, we can start thinking about a lot of, um, you know, other things like, yeah, keeping the team engaged and, you know, what does it mean for us all to be successful together and what does that mission look like? Um, you know, the start of the mission is don't fail. And, you know, obviously as you go along, the mission needs to encompass, you know, what, what's, what are our broader aims and where are we going? And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's been good for me, me personally to try to broaden the definition of that. Nice, nice. Cool. Uh, and Bryce, wh- what are your future plans for yourself at, at Workforce? Uh, and where can our audience get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Yeah, but f- future plans really just yeah keep uh, keep growing the company here. I mean, one of the one of the really interesting things that's been opening up for us is um, is this sort of you know we've we now built a, a global company which allows us to you know, work with enterprise clients you know around that twenty four hour cycle and kind of we're taking on a lot of really interesting and exciting clients. Um, uh, you know, in in that space, um, and uh, I'm just really interested to see where all the chips land um, with with COVID. I'm, I'm I'm suspecting there's a lot of new software we're going to have to build, but I don't quite know what it is yet. So I'm I'm very keen to get in front of some customers who can tell me what that is and um, see if we can uh, be at the top of that list. Cool. Yeah, I think we're all waiting to see how that that plays out right into 2021. Awesome. Thank Definitely. you so much for your time and jumping on SAS District today. Appreciate it, Bryce. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Kill. No problem. Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital. 
and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.